0: Thank you all for coming to Mastering the Grill, Why Some Interviews Go Up in Smoke.
1: My name is Brooke Gladstone, and I have social anxiety disorder, (laughs) which puts me right in the middle of the public radio producer demographic. Because one thing I've noticed in, I don't know, almost 30 years in journalism is that the least confident, most humble branch of the journalism community is the Public, actually generally the radio branch but especially public radio and I was trying to think of why that is. You know the the writers you know and you know the, the people among you who are public radio producers who come from writing they they tend to be more confident than the ones that come straight from radio you know there's 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 safety in doing whatever you're gonna do without the person that you're doing it to being present. And I think that really helps. And when you're doing television, you've got uh, this the phalanx of equipment between you and the person. So you, you got a little safety. Uh, in, in radio, it's it's kind of mano a mano. It's you and the machine and the mic and you're face to face. It's, you know, it, it's different. It's It's just a different experience. The same thing that makes radio so, I was afraid I was popping. The same thing that makes radio so intimate is what makes it so hard to ask questions. That wasn't grammatical, but maybe you get the point. So I wanted to talk about why it's hard, and how you can make it easier. I'm going to start with just a a really quick anecdote. Um, When I started out in journalism, I had no skills. I trained as an actor, but although I was fine on stage, I mean I was actually not very versatile, but pretty good, but I was terrible in auditions because I would get the shakes, and uh, I would look like I was having a a petite mile epileptic seizure. So I wouldn't get any parts. If I was just given the parts, then I would do okay. Uh, and it was only later that I discovered beta blockers. Whenever I speak publicly, I'm on it now. In any case. So, but but the thing is, is that I realized that I didn't like to be judged by people auditioning me, but I was okay when I was playing a part. And This is a lesson that you can kind of apply, even when you're being really, really honest and genuine with your interviewee, which is, you know, essentially there are three principles. You need what that person has. It's not about you, and you're the listener surrogate. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. So, uh, so anyway, so those are the three things. And uh, those are the three things that inform everything else that I'm going to say. And now I'm gonna talk very quickly about what I'm gonna talk about, which is the three, d- yes? I don't know if you said all
2: three things, did
1: you? I said three. They have something you want. It's not about you and you're the listener surrogate. I like to be all schematic. You could probably divide it up differently. Um, and I'm gonna talk about three kinds of interviews the kind that are live, the kind that I mostly do, which are taped and extremely heavily edited, and the kind that you do when you're prospecting for tape in a piece. So uh, they all kind of require different techniques. And if anybody wants to ask questions during this, that's fine, it's not that long of a presentation and we can also do it all at the end too. So I wanted to start with uh, interviews that you're prospecting for tape in pieces. And, uh, you know, here's where you have the most power. And obviously with great power comes great responsibility. So it's best to have a straightforward approach. But um, but sometimes you can't be entirely straightforward because, and I did an interview with Seymour Hirsch, who described how he got uh, the me lie story and involved Flattering, you know, joking it up all friendly with a general that he didn't feel particularly friendly towards. Flattering the hell out of a lawyer that he didn't have much enthusiasm for. Barking at one soldier who seemed to need that in order to respond to him. And being really, really nice and sweet to some other soldiers to get what he needed. Now, I'm not saying that he was being entirely insincere in all of these cases. I'm just saying his sincerity here was irrelevant. He sold it. And uh, when we talk about, and I'm starting instead of at the beginning, I'm sort of starting in the middle and then I'll back up to the beginning, I guess. Uh, When we talk about the issue of deception, you know, you never lie You never misrepresent yourself in an interview. I mean, they already know who you are. You don't have to tell them if you have an agenda. You don't have to reveal that you feel hostility towards this person if you do. Uh, In fact, you can agree with, with sincerity, with something that they hold to be true, and you can, there's this rule or this principle, this tactic, actually, I think you'd call it. And and it goes something like this. I think Cokie Roberts named it, but everybody uses it. It's called, I'll show you mine if you show me yours, and then I'll cut mine out. <laughs> and that's what... <laughs> And, uh, you know, that works pretty well, and I think it's fair. They know the mic is on, and you know the mic is on, and, and I will enjoy having a, a discussion of ethics about this, uh, you, know, af- you know, as soon as I'm done getting through this other stuff. Uh, when you're prospecting for pieces, order is really important. The order in which you talk to your people If you think there's somebody in your pre-interviews who will be kind of the fulcrum or the armature of the piece and other people will be responding to that person, then talk to them first. Because this gives you a great leap forward in creating my favorite piece tool, which is the butt cut. You know, My favorite thing is to go from butt cut to butt cut to butt cut to butt cut so that they're all responding to each other. And the way you do that is you have a guy and he says something, and then you have the guy you know who's going to disagree, and you completely repeat word for word what that other guy said and let that guy respond to it. And then you just push them together. It's great for pacing. It's, uh, it creates a, a sense of, of uh, dynamism, a, a kind of argument that you can't get if you, if you then come in and say, but so-and-so disagreed. You know, there's nothing that kills this piece more than, but so-and-so feels differently, in my opinion. Uh, I hate that. I, I think it slows everything down. And if the tape doesn't say he disagrees, then, then you're not using the right tape. But that's about putting together a piece, and this is about interviewing. So I thought I would play you my favorite butt cut uh, in, in recent years. Uh, it was in a piece about uh, whether or not uh, objectivity is still worthwhile. And uh, I spoke to Len Downey, who was then the editor of the Washington Post, and, uh, and anyway, then I uh, followed it with Michael Kinsley, who uh, had a different view.
3: Unlike the rest of our staff, I had the last word as to whether or not the paper was being fair in its reporting on these issues, and I didn't want to take a position even in my own mind on them. I wanted to maintain a completely open mind.
1: And so despite all the information that flows through your desk and all you know about uh, the political environment of Washington, D.C., you are able to not make up your mind?
3: Yes, actually, it comes fairly easily to me. I guess it's the nature of my personality to see all sides of most issues. In fact, I'm rather surprised at people that are so definite about things.
4: Did he say he can bend forks with his mind? You know, some people can do remarkable things.
1: Michael Kinsley.
4: I mean, Len Downey, I admire. But I'm not sure that I would admire him as much if I thought that he was really able to uh, go blank in his mind as easily as he claims to.
1: It's a really, really simple thing. Um, but in order to do it fairly, you have to really pretty much go word for word because otherwise they're responding to something that somebody didn't say and subtle differences can screw things up. You need to be fair. Uh uh-huh. Can you say
5: the question you asked leading it to that... Do you re-record that and re-script that, or is that
1: the actual question? Oh, no, that's... If there's a question dropped in um, to a person, then, then it's a real question. If uh, And it would have... You know, if I had scripted it, I wouldn't have said, flows through your desk, which is kind of a bizarre thing to say. But, uh, um, I mean, obviously, I'll put my voice in there, but then I'll say, Downey says... Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if I'm actually talking to the guy, then I'll just leave it. And... Uh, and that's something else that comes up here and everywhere else you know you don't have to pay as much attention to your question when you're prospecting for tape in a piece but sometimes it can come in really handy so don't just assume that you're not going to be asking the question in your own piece because it you've cut out a real opportunity for yourself if you do that um Another thing when you're uh, when you're doing an interview is uh, that's taped is is you can ask the same question over and over and over again, and then combine the answers into the best answer. Uh, anybody here from National Public Radio uh, is probably having a heart attack right now but it's but I mean I you know I used to have this I used to do this a lot I mean I remember a trillion years ago when I edited all things considered uh Linda Wertheimer would get upset if I reordered questions but that's not the way it happened it's true it's so much better than the way it happened and uh and you know we've always been quite transparent about the editing but obviously the editing itself if it's done well is invisible So you have another ethical dilemma, which you can only resolve by bending over backwards to be fair and uh, make sure that you don't try and win the argument with the edit and that you don't ever take anything out of context. It's easier said than done, but it's amazing given how Stunningly much, we reinvent the interviews that we do on the program. We've never gotten a single complaint, even from people who were really pissed off by the interview as it was con- being conducted. Uh, sometimes uh, myself or my co host can get a little hot under the collar, and uh, you know, that, a lot of that stuff gets cut out too. Um, sometimes you don't, when you're So so you have this opportunity to ask a question over and over and over again, sometimes because you just want a better answer, sometimes because you want to show your listener surrogate that you haven't been brushed off. Um, It's really important in any interview, obviously, to be prepared, not so much when you're prospecting for tape, but when you're doing an interview uh, to be taped and edited or an interview that's live, it really doesn't help if you're not well enough prepared. I have a short piece of tape of me and an interview that I wanted to kill. In the end, we only ran it for about two minutes uh, with John Stossel, in which I was unprepared.
3: While they tend to believe in what they say, they're also subconsciously aware. These are scientists
1: that who think that global warming is grand, caused by man. They're not
3: going to get interviewed by Good Morning America if they don't find a problem. And I routinely found scientists finding big problems, big worries from dioxin to pesticide residues, when good scientists said, you know, it's not that risky.
1: So you don't believe that there is an international scientific consensus that global warming poses a danger?
3: Well, anything can pose a danger. The question is, how big a danger? Is it the crisis that I keep hearing about? And the scientists that I talk to say, we don't know that that's true.
1: The scientists that you talk to say that you don't know if that's true, but the vast majority of scientists that have been convened on these international panels who have won Nobel Prizes believe that it is true, that global warming poses a serious danger and requires some action.
3: Uh, The vast majority have agreed with that. I do not believe that is the case.
1: You don't believe that is the case. The consensus seems to be clear. Why don't you believe it?
3: Because scientists tell me that the people writing the alarmist reports do not reflect the majority of scientists who really understand it, that the way you characterize it is not the way I've heard good scientists characterize it, and that the idea and the tone of voice you use is very telling. It's saying, yes, there's a crisis. How can you refute that? You're such a jerk. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm sorry if my tone conveyed that. So According anyway, to the scientists that the, you've spoken the to, there is no immediate there. danger posed by global warming that requires... Was energy. that correct? I thought it was so obvious that there was a scientific consensus that when he said there wasn't, I didn't have any facts. And as a matter of fact, you know, the tone of voice, there was... You heard about three or four iterations on this. There were about ten. You don't believe this? Wait a minute. Are you saying you don't believe? You know, it's just blah. so. I said we've got to kill this. And Kat, my senior producer, who's British, goes, "Oh no, I think it's wonderful." You know. So we ran it. Now, um, I, uh, you know, I have uh, an example of an interview that I'm very proud of that I, I, I was very well prepared for, but I won't play it because it's it'd be like wanking. Go ahead. A question on that so is your lesson then that
5: that you take from that that you should have had an answer ready for when he says no that there is no scientific consensus?
1: If I'm going to talk to somebody who I know holds an opinion like that, I didn't know he held it quite that strong. That you know that I knew that he didn't believe that man was the principal cause for global warming. I knew he believed that. What I didn't. Think that he would refute was that there was a scientific consensus that disagreed with him. He simply said, "My numbers are different from yours." I mean, we see this a lot lately, and uh, you know, in the campaign, and you know, now in what uh, Farhad Manju in his great book, *The Post-Fact Society*, calls you know, where basic what seem to be obvious facts suddenly become up for grabs. You you have to have things nailed down, and and you can't sail in there, uh, thinking that uh, that you can simply assert something to the contrary, and, and it's going to fly. You know the, that ran on the show because you know they love the tension of it. And then I asked him uh, after this, you know, why do you? With, if you know so many scientists who agree with you, then why is your chief spokesman Michael Crichton? and he said because he's famous so that was great and you know made him sound like a jerk and i guess in that instance uh you know but i didn't you know we didn't edit it that way you know that was you know in fact it made me more sound more like a jerk but uh but anyway it's it's not it seems so obvious prepare but in this society you, you really better have your facts nailed down if you're going into an interview knowing that you are going to be presenting an opposing position. In fact, you should have your, nails da- your uh, facts down even when you're supporting the person because you're still going to have to ask challenging questions. And you can't just pull fake challenges out of thin air. They need to be real. I mean, otherwise, it's just sort of, oh, yes, you're so right. Oh, yes, and I so agree with you. And that's bad radio, I think. So um, so when you run up into a guest, uh, you know, I'm just gonna mention one thing that, you know, one of the producers on the show said, be sure to mention this, and I thought it's so obvious I don't need to, but then she said uh, that for a long time she was working for a program where she was doing preps, and after like three weeks, uh, the host came up to her and said, this is so not me. The host came up to her and said, you're giving me yes or no questions, so don't, don't ask questions that, that can be answered in one word because it really sounds bad on the radio. And, you know, you can, a lot of times, if you have to, you can say, do you think this? And if so, blah, blah, blah. You know, but it, I think that sounds kind of formal, but you just, you really want to avoid the one word answer because once you've got it, you're sort of stuck with it. Uh, unless that you can ask the follow on and then cut the yes or the no to the follow on question, which you sometimes can, but it it can create a problem. So, um, and then the other thing is when you're doing it for tape, you don't have to worry about creating a narrative arc at the moment. The whole thing can go off the track, and you can build it later. So you can go back and ask those questions. If you think that you've come in with the wrong agenda, you can start prospecting around. I mean, I didn't. I have a tape here. I probably won't play that either. But it was this guy who was doing a piece. He used to. He was a photojournalist in Rwanda, and he decided that he would do a movie, a fictional movie, with real Rwandans about real things that happened. But there was a love story and it was all this. And he thought that this would be a better way to convey the reality of Rwanda. And so I was going to talk to him about sort of the technical and the aesthetic issues there. And then he said something that made it clear that this guy was in serious pain over his guilt that he didn't do anything to fix the situation. And so the whole interview just went pring. And I said, uh, do you think that with this film you can forgive yourself? I mean, that was not a question in the prep, obviously. And the answer was just, you know, it was just heartrending. Uh, but I'm not gonna play that for you because it's too long. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, the thing is, is you can't just go in and stick to your prep. But it's really good to have a prep, and it's really good to have it in the order. I don't believe in winging it. I like a piece of paper in front of me. Then I feel free to depart from it whenever I want. And then the other thing that... Um, and then the other thing that uh, for tape... Actually, I've sort of wandered off here. But I wanted to play a piece of tape about when you're prospecting tape in pieces. Uh, you really just want to go for... I mean... Sometimes you just have to be lucky. Sometimes you just have to hope for the best. Bob Garfield, my co-host, was doing a piece. His premise was, very Garfieldian, that the British don't have any good celebrities. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was in London and he hoped for the best. And if you play tape eight, you can see that things really happen for Garfield the way they don't for me.
4: Excuse me, I'm Bob Garfield from National Public Radio in Washington. Can I ask you a question? Who are your big celebrities?
1: It's got to be David Beckham's wife, yeah. Posh Spice. Big celebrities in England?
4: Nasser Hussain, the English cricket captain. He's uh, he's, he's one of my
2: favourites. I don't know, Tom Cruise. uh, Tom Cruise, American. Yeah, Christina Ricci, Michelle Pfeiffer. American, American. Yeah, worldwide, I think most of the big actors and actresses are American.
3: David Beckham, I suppose, and his wife. Posh. That's the best you can come up with. Yeah. i afraid so. Isn't that a Sad. pitiful Sad. state of affairs? Said. Said.
1: You talk about well, You it know, Bob, Bob is an agenda reporter in a way that, that few are. Uh, a couple of other things about uh, taped interviews um, that you get to edit. Uh, you know, ob- everybody's probably heard this before, but, you know, if you run up against the wall, you, a- you ask a personal question. How did you get in this job? How did you feel when that happened? Uh, that sometimes uh, will ease things. Sometimes you circle back around to the hard question that you didn't get the answer to. Uh, one of the best techniques is to finish the interview, turn off everything, and then just say, you know, about that question, let me explain. I just, you know, I really feel a blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, I, and I, my sense is that you are doing, and then they'll say, well, you see, and then they start talking. And then if you say, do you mind if I record that? And, like, I would say three-quarters of the time they're okay if you turn back on the tape recorder. And then you, and then you get it. And, uh, and sometimes it's, uh, it really takes turning off the tape recorder. I mean, I don't know, you know, what kind of mics people are using nowadays in the field. I remember when I was reporting from Moscow, um, uh, I liked using a buyer and I just thought it was the most forgiving mic, you know, you could seem to be able to do everything with it, and, uh, but when I was getting my equipment together, and uh, Michael Sullivan, who is my friend, who is a producer, suggested I get a buyer, and I said, what's it look like, and he says, it's like a big black dick in your face, <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, is that it's kind of off-putting, you know, so, you know, you put it on the side, and you put it down, and the, the worst thing you can do is just jab them with it so you know and you know with any mic that you have and i know there are directional issues and some mics are really really precise any way that you can keep it sort of out of their line of sight is is just going to help you if you're sitting with them and in a studio uh, you know if you obviously you want to look at them you want to have uh not so much between you although that's really hard in studios i find um there's also uh Again, when I say that the questions really matter, you have to convey a lot of essential information in the questions. So sometimes even when the answer really sucks, you have to say, but it was in uh, 1997 when you did such and such and you know, and you, you have to string that stuff out as naturally you can. You, you just have to do it and, uh, and, there's, uh, and there's just no way around it. In terms of the live interviews, This is really tough. There are three things, maybe, that you need to get. Three questions that you really want answered. It really depends on whether it's biographical or whether you're asking a challenging question. But here is where we run up into a problem that's pretty severe in the country and really serious in public radio. And that is the conflict between civility and listener surrogacy, by which I mean if you bear down and ask follow-ups and demand an answer to your question, you will seem rude. Some people don't like that. You can be nice and, and be friendly, but you owe it to the people for whom you're asking the question not to give up. I mean, a great deal has been said about Tim Russert. And I'm sure he was a great guy, uh, but I don't think he always used his superpowers for good. He was, uh, he was, a, he was a gotcha guy, and often he'd ask the tough question and, and allow himself be, to be brushed off and not come back for the follow-up, which is probably why everybody loved him so much. Because they all looked like they were undergoing a really tough interview, and he looked tough. But he was able to get away with. They were all able to get away frequently, not always, but frequently with saying nothing. I mean, it's just not America's way to get tough, which is why uh, this little interview, uh, number six, got so much press. And I, I don't even think I have to identify. So it. explain
0: to us why you think Governor Palin is ready to be Commander in Chief.
6: Governor Palin has the good fortune of being on the ticket with John McCain, who there is no question is the most experienced and shown proven judgment on the international stage. He understands foreign affairs. He has a familiarity. Well, we know all that about John McCain, Tucker.
0: I asked you about her, though, because we all know the role of the VP, Mm -hmm. as John McCain has defined it, is to be able to step into the job of the presidency on day one if something should happen to the president. So I'm asking you about her foreign policy experience.
6: Yeah, Campbell, certainly there are a number of people that are supporting Barack Obama's candidacy and feel like he's experienced enough to take on the Oval Office. Our feeling is that you has my just as much experience as Barack Obama. Okay, she but,
0: but you set a different standard. As the that was. candidate
6: of our opponent.
0: Uh, so, does she. Pardon me, can, can you set it, what, what I'm saying is that you set a different standard by arguing how important it was. With John McCain Mm -hmm. and and no one's arguing with you that he has much more experience than Barack Obama. So I'm just trying to get someone from the campaign to explain to me what foreign policy experience she has or what qualifications she has that would uh, allow her to be ready to be commander in chief if something should happen to, to Senator McCain. Well, that's Campbell, a let fair me be question, clear. I, I don't it?
6: think there should be any problem explaining her experience. She has executive state level experience. She's been in public office reforming Washington. She's been in executive office longer and more in a more effective sense than Barack Obama's been in the United States Senate. She's been the commander so, so of the National Guard of the Alaska okay, but, okay, National okay, okay, Tucker, Guard that's been deployed overseas. That's foreign policy experience. All right, all right just and I give me, Tucker, sorry, just if I
0: can interrupt for one second. Commander, because uh-huh. I've heard you guys say this a lot. Can you just tell me one decision that she made as
1: Commander-in-Chief of the Alaska National Guard? Just one. Okay, so... uh, Wait, what did he say? uh, She said, surely you can't belittle her executive experience. Why do you belittle everything? No, he said, anytime that there are people sent from there, she's... She's involved, and, and Tucker and uh, Campbell Brown said, uh, "No, that's the head of the National Guard that does that. It isn't the uh, governor." And he goes, "How can you belittle everything that I, you know, that she does?" And that's that's now that interview that was Campbell Brown and CNN. Was everybody familiar with that? I guess I just assumed. Um, you know, that made the McCain campaign so mad that McCain canceled the interview that he was going to do with the famously. Uh, uh, <laughs> dangerously aggressive Larry King. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's what it is in this country to do that. There is uh, not that problem across the pond. And uh, the person who most demonstrates uh, an unwillingness to drop it is, uh, is a guy named Jeremy Paxman. And, uh, and I just have, I want to conclude my yakking part of this with this extraordinary demonstration of doggedness, which in the end yielded nothing, I want to say. But if he was pre- functioning as the listener surrogate or whether he was doing it for his own jollies, I don't know. He was asking uh, Michael Howard uh, you know, his, um, whether or not he had threatened... Uh, somebody with, uh, well, you know, it, it, the circumstances aren't really important. Uh, it, it's, it's this demonstration here that you would never hear in America. And this is number seven.
2: I was entitled to express my views. I was entitled to be consulted. Did you threaten to overrule I, I was not entitled to instruct Derek Lewis. And I did not instruct him. And did the you truth threaten to overrule th- The him? truth of the matter is that Mr. Marriott was not suspended. Did you I did threaten not to overrule him? I did not overrule Derek. Did Lewis. you threaten to overrule him? I took advice on what I could or could not did do. Did you threaten and to and overrule him, Mr. Howard? I acted scrupulously in accordance with that advice. I did not overrule Derek. Did you Lewis. threaten to overrule him? Mr. Marriott him? was not suspended. Did you threaten to overrule him? I have accounted. For my decision to dismiss Derek Lewis, did you threaten to overrule great him in detail before the House of Commons? I note you are not answering the question whether you threatened well, to the, overrule him. The, the important aspect of this, which it's very clear to bear in mind, I'm sorry, I'm going to be frightfully this. rude, but yes, you but can. I, I'm sorry, it's quite Yes or no? and I would give you an answer. answer. Did you threaten to overrule him? I discussed this matter with Derek Lewis. I gave him the benefit of my opinion. I gave him the benefit of my opinion in strong language, but I did not instruct him because I was not uh, entitled to instruct him. I was entitled to express my opinion, and that is what I did. With respect, that is not answering the question of whether you threatened to overrule him. It's dealing with the relevant point, which is what I was entitled to do and what I was not entitled to do, and I have dealt with this in detail before the House of Commons and before the Select Committee. But with respect, you haven't asked the question whether you threatened to overrule him. Well, you see, the question is what was I entitled to do and what was I not entitled to do? I was not entitled to instruct him, and I did not do that. Right. Uh, we'll, leave, we'll leave that aspect there.
1: <laughs> A masterful performance. Uh, and, you know, unheard of here. Uh... I, I'm I'm pretty much concluded. I think uh, we can. Yeah, sure. I just want to say the big difference
0: between those two interviews is is that she sounded hostile almost, right? And she was cutting him off. And Paxman was just the same tone over and over. Did he threaten to overrule him? You know, there, it
5: was almost the tone in the two of them. I think that.
1: I didn't perceive it that way. I could see why you would. It sounded to me like she was suffering, whereas he was coldly you know, tightening the vise, you know, she was like, "Uh, look, I'm really sorry, I just want to know. I mean, I I think it's a fair question. I mean, she was, you know, she was kind of doing, forgive me, the sort of girl thing. I know I'm not supposed to be really pushy about this, but, uh, you know, if she had said, what has she done? What, What decision has she ever made? What decision has she ever made? Uh, Without all of that frou frou apology stuff happening, uh, I think she would have gotten hammered a lot harder than she did. That's just uh, you know. I do think that there there's a, uh, a certain latitude that's given to men that aren't that isn't given to women. Um, I think that's fairly obvious, but I, I can defend that. But in any case, the thing is is that what I saw here was somebody who did not want to be run over and was in real time. And that's the problem with live interviews. You have a certain amount of time. You want to get something out there, and you have to interrupt, or these professional talkers will spin through their time. And then at some point, these cable news people have to get embarrassed that there's nothing valuable on their air. So then you dig in, and you try in your two-minute or your three-minute interview, and maybe you fail but at least you're being the viewer surrogate. At least I feel that way. Uh-huh?
5: Um, once you, if, if you're in an interview and one, um, you make a big blunder and you embarrass yourself and you stumble all over yourself and you end up with egg on your face because you don't know your facts or because you've made a social faux pas or something, how do you find that you're able to you know, recover and continue on with the same interview that you still have to get information from?
1: Uh, well, you mean if you're live or if you're taped? Not,
5: no, if you're live, I think it's just, you're
1: dead. If you're taped, you just, you know, you you take whatever time you need to recover. I, I do want to say though that sometimes your mistakes can be quite telling and sometimes it's worth, if you don't mind looking like an idiot, leaving it in. As a matter of fact, I. I can't believe you did this, Gwen. Gwen is my friend, but she has no idea that I have a tape of me sounding like a total idiot right here, ready to play, Uh, and uh, uh, basically, it was was saying goodbye to a reporter who had been in Afghanistan for uh, five years. Her name is Pam Constable. She uh, this was all during the wardrobe malfunction after the Super Bowl, which was a big story for our program because it had all these, you know, media fining, all this, lots of implications. And the story that I was doing with her, the, what I was asking her about was the reappearance of women on Afghan television. This was several years ago bet they're gone by now because I haven't checked but there was this opening and this was a you know this was a big thing and it was very symbolic and I was talking to her about that and it was happening during an election campaign in Afghanistan and a lot of this wardrobe stuff was around our election time and I was concluding my interview with her this is the third tape You talk about an election season in Afghanistan. Of course, we have one here, and we also have an argument over broadcast standards that won't seem to go away. From where you stand, how does Janet Jackson's little problem seem to you? You know, I'm sorry, Brooke, but I have no idea what you're talking about. It's been uh, dominating the headlines here. During the halftime show at the Super Bowl, uh, Justin Timberlake reached over and...
4: Who is Justin Timberlake? I'm in the mountains
1: of Central Asia. Who is Justin? Who are these people? (laughs) (laughs) I really envy you. (laughs) So... So the thing is, is that that was the stupidest question in the world to put to Pam Constable, clearly. Um, to I,
5: your
1: credit, you left <laughs> it, on, it on the air. Yeah, I, I, I left it on the air because I thought that maybe it said something about our national provincialness, our narrowness, our focus on triviality, which was amply demonstrated by me in that interview. Uh, <laughs> But I thought that that stupid mistake said something that, you know, I was the butt of the joke, but I thought it said something that was valuable there in terms of, you know, what they're going through, the the deal that they're putting up with, and, and this... Bullshit that that we uh, get consumed with so you know in terms of recovering from stupid things uh, Sometimes you can use them if they're in the taped interview And if they you know what I find when is sometimes if I'm barking up the wrong tree then uh, Maybe other people are barking up the same wrong tree too, and that it might actually be a useful exercise. They don't have to look like an idiot, but I can. I have the I have the show. I have plenty of other shows to recover. Um, uh, you know, a lot of times it's just a factual error. You know, in my interview with uh, with Hirsch, uh, you know, his whole thing about me lie the first four questions I asked him, which I got from articles and Wikipedia, and he'd never done a full-length discussion of how he'd gotten me live, so it was in in places where he'd been quoted, and I asked him, like, four things, and he goes, that's wrong. That's wrong. No, that's not right. And it was about, like, six minutes in when I finally got something right. You know, we ended up posting the entire interview online, so if anybody wants to hear that, there it is. But I cut the wrong facts out. I didn't think that they you know, expanded our, our, the range of human knowledge at all or gave any insight, but, um, uh, but the Pam Constable thing, I thought maybe it did. So that's why that one left in. You can always recover. People are, if you don't come in like a dick, then, you know, people will forgive you. In fact, a lot of times if you sort of stumble and fumble, it, it makes people more relaxed you're human I'm human I'll forgive your mistakes you know maybe you'll go easy on me you know it's a, there's a you know there's a whole little dance that goes on beneath the surface and sometimes uh, doing something kind of silly is not a bad thing in terms of creating a good environment for uh, openness yeah I have a question that's kind of more like form over content
6: but in terms of advice to leave your, your question in. I mean, if it's a produced
5: piece where you want to have your question put to the, to the uh, person you're interviewing. Um, a lot of my work is increasingly done at my desk, so it's a phone connection that I'm recorded on as well as my interviewee. And I just wonder what you or other people in the room think about having, like if my question is phone, phone tape quality and so is their answer. I don't
1: care. I think that's fine. I mean, to be honest with you, um, you know, obviously phone tape is kind of crappy. If you can not have it, that's that's better. But you know, you want to distinguish your voice uh, within the interview. Uh, you know, your actual real time question with your tracks that you write later. In fact, uh, since I do so much of my work in the studio, sometimes the uh, engineer will make my question voice tinnier. They'll actually slightly distort it so that nobody thinks that I'm doing what, you know, some, you suggested I might be doing, which was, uh, you know, cutting in a a taped question. So, uh, you know, to be in their same space, you know, it's a little weird, uh, but not very. I mean, all you can say is in a phone conversation, we, although it's weird, if you're in a phone conversation, why can't you tape sync yourself and have them be in the phoner? I don't understand what the what the issue is. How come you would be in a, on a phone voice?
6: Uh, because that's how the system at my desk rolls in. I mean, that's actually a good idea. I so
1: I mean, you can do your own tape sync and uh, and have your voice in 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 good fidelity and and not even deal with. Then you don't have to say because it. I would if you have a really good question, I would just say use it under all circumstances if you have to. But. I don't think you have a problem. If you've got a microphone and a tape recorder, you don't have a problem.
5: Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to take this back briefly to what we were talking about the difference in interview style between here in the United States largely and, I don't know, maybe I've just been totally spoiled from having lived abroad for 12 of the last 14 years uh, and in particular listening to the BBC. I just, I find so much of the American interview style, and I know there's not one, to be utterly insufferable because it's so polite. And, and, and I'm talking cable news, I'm talking national public radio, especially since there's so little live done on public radio these days in the, in, in the news programs. And, and I want to hear more Aggress- aggressivity is perhaps not the right word, but just get, getting in, <coughs> not letting people off the book. And I'm just wondering, I mean, that's one thing that I admire on the media for. I mean, for instance, the
1: Judith Miller
5: interview is,
1: an, is an I almost brought that. Yeah, I probably should have. That was a, that was a great moment of Bob's uh, listener surrogacy. I mean, I think she almost walked out of the studio. She wasn't happy. She wasn't in the studio. She was actually in yeah. her pajamas, I heard, or something like that. She wasn't she happy. Almost
5: canned, she almost terminated the interview. And there's way too little out there that I don't really have a question other than this just an expression of my frustration and why I often end up tuning out American public radio via the internet because there's not enough meat on the boat.
1: I, yeah, no, I, but again, it's, it's, it's an attitudinal thing. I think it's possible to be aggressive without to be persistent without sounding aggressive. I mean, I I was, I don't know where she is now, but I was a huge fan of Judy Swallow with the, uh, you know, do you mean to tell me, am I to assume that, you know, that kind of thing is a whole lot of fun, but it doesn't have to be there for you to have meat on your bone. That's that's sort of, I will take uh, umbrage because you're a person in power who's got a reputation for being a liar. fair enough, but it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's satisfying.
5: I'm not saying that that's always the right way to take because sometimes I also find myself yelling at the radio in, in Europe, because he's saying, let them finish, you know, you don't have to put yourself.
1: It's, you know, it's, it's, it's always a balancing act. Uh, I do think that uh, American television news is frequently, you know, more kabuki. Than interview, especially in election time, that you know people are going through. Everybody knows what everybody's going to say. I don't know why anybody watches. Um, you know, it's uh, nobody is is being held to account, and it's uh, it's. I have some theories as to why, and and I I you know I can't predict what the future will be, but I don't think it's going to be. It's going to stay exactly like this. I think we're still in a slightly post 9 11 paralytic moment, and it's also so bipartisan, and only partisans appear on each of the cable news channels and so on. Mm-hmm.
5: How would you evaluate Katie Couric's interview with Sarah Palin in terms
1: of being civil, but being dogged, not letting it go, and, and yet not interrupting her? I thought, I thought Katie Couric did, uh, did really well. I thought she did better than John Gibson. Um I, Charlie Gibson I uh, I you know that um, Bush doctrine thing was a gotcha. you know, she asked him to define it when the same when he raised the same question with uh, you know with Obama and uh, and Hillary in in an earlier interview, he said the Bush doctrine, which is. Uh, you know the use of preemption in the event of what is perceived to be an uh, an imminent threat. You know he defined it here. He didn't. You know it was like cheating. You know it, it shouldn't be about that. Uh, you know I felt that Katie Curry for the most part, asked substantive questions that she couldn't couldn't answer. I thought, attitudinally, she was a good example of how you can do that kind of thing. But, uh, you know. It wasn't hard to play stump the candidate there. The candidate wasn't very good with a slicker with a slicker character. You know, uh, sterner measures might needed to have been taken. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you say more about what you do to prepare um, for an interview in advance and working also that you're at a show and working with your team to help you with
1: that? Yeah. No, it's it's really uh, fantastic to have two heads on every interview instead of one. Uh, You know, the producer and I will both go through uh, everything we can find online, or sometimes the producer will just send me a a heap of documents, and then uh, about an hour in advance of the interview, I'll have read those, and then I'll go and edit the questions, maybe reorder them. Maybe ask them. I mean, add a few. Maybe subtract some. Ask. You know, they did the pre-interview when they're lucky enough to get one. Uh, we could talk about how to make a good prep here. It always helps me when somebody says he what it is the producer is wanting me to elicit. You know, if I have a question like and then what happened, and I don't know what it is that. Uh, the uh, interviewee is supposed to say and frequently the interviewee may not know either. It's a lot easier um, if I've read and many times this has happened because I do read the material that I'll know the story that's behind that question so I can say, you know, in 1965 when you were at the ball game or something and then they'll go, oh, oh okay, that's what you mean. So it's it's that something that simple. So then what we do is we we create an arc. You know, there's the There's the material, that's the basic material at the top. Sometimes that we let them answer those questions. More often, they answer them, kind of relaxes them, but that stuff gets cut off and it gets put in the intro. I can say it faster, clearer, and, and get to the good stuff sooner. But we start with the factual stuff. Then we start getting into context, attitude, reasons, you know, approach the, the the really interesting nut part, and uh, and then we, uh, and then we ask a big, broad question. Usually, you know, and so what does this mean to the, you know, state of the universe, or uh, you know, how do you think that this, how do you think, uh, you know, this will affect, you know, a future legal challenges of journalists on secrecy or some more, you know, anonymous sources or, you know, in other words, it's always the impact, lasting impact question, what will the future bring later? And that's your standard form for PrEP. And then I, uh, and then inside there, weird, wonderful things can happen. I will almost always ask every question that's on the PrEP, very often not in the order, and very often the additional questions, because I'm hearing stuff that we didn't anticipate, will we'll make a better interview. Mm-hmm, Alan, Alicia. all oh, right,
5: I'm just curious, um, when you write a script or you co-read it with the producer, how, um, how scripted are the questions or are, I mean, you write out exactly how you anticipate the an <coughs> question or is it more of a, you know, hit this point, ask about
1: this? Well, Bob and I are really different. You know, Bob likes bullet points. I like sentences. Sometimes I read them right off the page really well. <laughs> sometimes I just look at them and then I'll say them in a different way but you know I kind of like I you know the fact is is that I don't want to think about my words because it distracts from what I'm hearing and you know Bob is different because Bob likes to craft and because we're edited he can take like five minutes crafting the perfect question right there in the studio Uh, you know Bob's questions tend to be a lot longer he's sort of making them phrase by phrase he's building them I you know I you know, I, I like to build something pretty in the prep that maybe I'll, I'll use or maybe I won't. But then I don't have to worry about how I'm going to ask that question. Uh, I, basically, I want to take my mind off of that stuff as much as I can. That's what works for me. But other people, just like bullet points, you know, Bob will say, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a trained monkey. You know, I can say my own questions. You know, I say, I'm a monkey. Go ahead. I'll just give me questions. I'll rewrite them and maybe I'll ask them exactly like that. Maybe I won't. Uh, Alicia, I know she was next. Them.
5: You, you know, you have the ability to be really funny, and I think that goes. I think that really goes a long way. I and mean, You ask hard-hitting questions, but then you just come in with something that's funny, and I think that, that comes across so well. And I just wonder, is that something that you've cultivated, or does that, that just come naturally? I mean, I know personally, it just comes naturally. But when you're on the air and you're in an interview situation, do you think about a moment when it's appropriate to be funny?
1: I think it's more of a defense mechanism. I come from a really big family. You know, we do whatever we can to get attention <laughs> and uh but you know it's I you know I so I try to be uh, you know when we're doing taped interviews, you know, I, I'll cut out most of my clip quips and only leave the ones that I think are not excessively lame um, but you know but, yeah no i i I think it's 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 not something that I cultivate, but I do believe. That humor is good for a program that is so meta and abstract and about policy and tendency and perception and not enough real people and not enough true narratives, and you have to impose them and you have to create them. And, it, I, you know, a program like ours could be nigh on to unlistenable if we didn't have some bells and whistles, and I guess the humor is part of that.
5: I understand what you said about that arc before and how you actually structure the interviews. Are you are you ever afraid that uh, well, you're not afraid about the media? But are you ever to a point where you think if we ask this question too early, it's going to change the tone and they'll be hostile? Oh, hostile way
1: through? Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time. But usually, you know, that is the question that you build to, so it falls in the natural place. Also, because we are so heavily edited, in the end, we can construct an arc um, as long as it doesn't sound weird. Like in the John Stossel thing you heard, uh, you know, if you'd listen to the, you know, we didn't cut out, I went back to him like four times in this, in what the clip you heard, but in reality, I went back to him about eight times. (laughs) It's just, you know, I wanted to. I I personally didn't want it to run, but the, the staff did, but you know, at least make it tighter. You do, you know, yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to play, you have to create a situation in which you're most likely to get what it is that you're after. And so, you know, you start nice Or sometimes I'll just, uh, if they'll come in and I don't agree, I say, look, uh, you know, I mean, generally they have not been misled by the producer. Sometimes people will say they've been ambushed, but I'll see the emails and I know that they haven't been. But, uh, you know, I'll say, I don't agree with you on this. And we're going to be talking about this. um, But we'll talk about these other things, too. And, uh, you know, we... I have a clip here. It's it's four minutes. It's it's really too long to run, I think, but it's with uh, Jonathan Klein, who is the president of CNN, and he had just come in and taken over. And I was doing an interview about his new CNN philosophy of how he was going to program the station, but you know he was going to do you know more serious storytelling and roll up your sleeves journalism, and then the runaway bride happened. And it was just ridiculous. And so, you know, he said, you know, we did this, you know, we said we want to talk to you about your, you know, here you are, you're new at uh, CNN. And, uh, uh, but we're also going to talk to you about the coverage of The Runaway Bride. And then he said, okay. So we started talking about The Runaway Bride and the answers were... I thought they were so bad that I kept going back to The Runaway Bride. And then, you know, in the end, I asked them a couple of questions about broader issues, and they didn't even make it into the two-way. So now CNN will never let us talk to anybody ever again. Uh, do you want to hear some of this? or do you, are you, It's okay if you don't. I'm not going to be hurt. We do? All right. It's, uh, it's number five. And if at any point, you know, people get restless, they, you know... Rattle your signs here on your neck, and I'll know that we should turn it off. Now, you were quoted as saying that CNN will do more roll-up-your-sleeves storytelling with provocative, character-driven narratives. Give me a sense of the kind of stories you're talking about.
4: Oh, We've done all sorts of things. Anderson Cooper went to Lebanon and Syria to really chart the birth of democracy there.
1: Frank Sesno
4: went to Germany to report a story on Hitler's secret family history. Um, we had six different reporters spend a couple of months looking into teen driving and why statistics actually have improved as far as safety in the past year. And So we're running the gamut.
1: Well, let's talk about the other end of that gamut then. Let's talk about Monday, May 2nd. CNN Daybreak, The Rundown had Runaway Bride, American Morning, Runaway Bride Could Face Criminal Charges, Live from CNN, Runaway Bride Back Home, Crossfire Should Runaway Bride Face Charges, Anderson Cooper, Paula Zahn, Larry King, Aaron Brown, all of them devoted at least part of their program to Jennifer Wilbanks, the Runaway Bride. And Jonathan, I have to ask you, does this fit into the roll-up-your-sleeves storytelling that you have in mind?
4: Well, sure. I mean, the New York Times covered the Runaway Bride, too, and I'm sure I heard a story about it on NPR.
1: It was way buried Uh, in the New York Times.
4: Well, we can quibble over degree, but what you will see more and more of is CNN focusing its resources on any given day around a few big stories while we continue to cover everything else as well. But one of our problems was before we were spread too thin, we would do a little bit about a lot of things, but none of it was very satisfying. It was all very headlining and surfacy. So instead, we're going to, on a regular basis, choose a story that we think is important or interesting. Uh, we were the first to throw all of our resources against the Shibo story, and we really put that story on the national agenda. And then we rolled up our sleeves and went down to Pinellas Park, And we went out to Tallahassee and got exclusive interviews with Jeb Bush.
1: We can quibble about the importance of the Shivo case. I don't want to, but I don't think it's a quibble to talk about the degree of coverage and the fact that there was some coverage of the runaway bride in The New York Times uh, in a discreet story or two is quite different from what... CNN did. A few years ago, we spoke to one of your predecessors, Walter Isaacson. He said some things in 2001 very similar to what you're saying now, more news and reporting, less shouting and soap operas. In fact, Bob read him a list almost identical to the one I just read you with the words Chandra Levy substituting Ah. for Runaway Bride. And is the lesson here that cable news simply operates at a level of inertia and entropy that no one can change, that you throw blanket coverage at a story that really doesn't merit it?
4: No, if you were listening to me, Brooke, you would have heard me say that on some days, that story that we decide to focus on will be the runaway bride. On other days, the story will be the spread of democracy in Lebanon. We looked around, we didn't see any other network anchor in Lebanon. And then we went to Syria, and we didn't find any network anchor there either. Now, you could criticize us for covering that story too heavily as well.
1: But are you saying that CNN's coverage of The Runaway Bride was an appropriate amount of coverage?
4: Oh, for sure. It was a fascinating story that had left a lot of questions unanswered. What drove (laughs) her to this? Is this a crime? Jonathan, people Uh, disappear
1: every day. It didn't become a story in the eyes of viewers until this seemed to take center stage on all the cable networks.
4: Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I'm a big believer that there's nothing innate about the medium that says it must take one road or another. It doesn't have to be high road or low road. And so sometimes it's going to be Lebanon and Syria and Baghdad. And sometimes it's going to be the 30th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. Sometimes it's going to be the runaway bride.
1: It seems to me that for the purposes of our discussion, you keep equating stories like Lebanon, which need no justification, with a weird little blip of a story like The Runaway Bride, which actually does need some justification.
4: Well, and yet, that's possibly a pretty elitist thing to say because I don't know that you can say that one story needs justification and one doesn't. Who are you to argue with the people who flock to watch one story and not the other?
1: So, there's an example of really good prep, by the way. I was, I had all that stuff in front of me, so I, you know, I could just reel it on out. And that was excellent prep by the producer. Um, I I guess that's an example of uh, following up. I don't know whether people would regard that as civil and appropriate or excessively aggressive or just kind of snotty. I don't know. I mean, uh, it'd be interesting to hear whether or not, you know, Tom, does that sound like an appropriate level of aggressiveness but did you think that maybe it sounded too uh, a little bit bitchy I mean it was there I mean clearly I was frustrated and my emotion always shows in interviews and there's just no way around that it took me a a
4: moment because I came in right in the middle when we
5: were playing the clip but I remembered instantly what it was it was again an example actually for me of the way interviews should be conducted in this kind of situation I mean you know he gave him I think
1: it got hostile, yeah.
6: Was it worth uh, losing the contact
1: with all the CNN people? Well, you know, I don't know who we can talk to anymore. Fox won't talk to us either. Uh, we ran into some problem with MSNBC a while back, although they'll talk to us now. We, you know, we've, uh, we seem to have burned a lot of bridges over the last eight years, and uh, sometimes we just have to wait for the PR people to change. Um, there's nothing we can do. I mean, uh, that's a big problem in, in covering any beat is that, you know, you risk losing your sources and you just have to work around it. Isn't it, isn't it particularly
5: though, when, when it comes to the media, that the media in general, uh, oftentimes reporters don't like to be questioned, reporters, producers, et cetera, on their motivations behind why they make a story? Uh,
1: you know, you can't lump, like, you know executives like Jonathan Klein with I think most every reporter that I've ever spoken to they may take umbrage the way that you know Judy Miller did but you know we had been hammering Judy Miller for months without calling her and when we called her she said where the hell have you been you just you just hammer me on on the radio week after week and you never ask and it was like holy shit she's totally right And so then she comes on and it was a big mess, but at least, you know, but she wanted to. And and mostly reporters, uh, you know, they're willing to defend their work. I had a big fight with uh, Michael Gordon on the, I didn't think it was a fight, but he did. He sent me like a 10 page email afterwards, uh, you know, because I disagreed with with him. Uh, But, you know, they at least, most reporters are willing to engage.
6: Uh huh. Um, tell me if you I talked about this earlier. Uh, about pre interviewing, can you tell us more about how you use that and uh,
5: whether,
6: it's always, whether it's always a good thing to do?
1: Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, is it always a good thing to do? What, you know, if somebody, if you can get a lot of information about somebody without having them say it to you over the phone before they say it to you in the studio. One really really good thing about having a producer is that they hear it but I haven't heard it. If I pre-interview somebody and then go talk to them, there's this horrible feeling of play acting because they've already said it to me. So, you know, it's it's good if somebody else can do the pre-interviewing. If you're going to be doing it, the, the the best thing to do is to tell them the sorts of things that you're looking for. And, you know, ask them, you know, very briefly how they'd address that, you know, but just say, you know, just give me a sentence on, 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 you know, what you think about that and try not to have them shoot their wad in advance because it's very hard for most regular people to, you know, to gin it up again once they've, they've already unloaded. And and it's sometimes it's impossible and it's hugely frustrating when you realize you had it in your phone and you don't have it in your, in your tape recorder. Uh Uh-huh. Um, uh, one problem that we run into with pre-interviewing is that we have people, like I'm a producer and I'll interview, pre-interview someone and then the host will interview them and they'll say, well, as I said to Julie, but they're on the show and nobody knows who Julie is. They're like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, Is it a live show? It is a live show. Uh, you know, I would just live with that. You know, I, the, your host should say our producer. You know, one of our producers. I mean, it it comes up sometimes we deliberately sprinkle. I I don't think there's anything prob- any problem with sort of, you know, breaking that fourth wall once in a while. I mean, they all know that it's more than just the guy behind the microphone. Or if they don't, they should. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, that's so that's so little. And on a on a especially on a on a live program, you know, you uh, little glimmers of the humanity and other characters can pop through there without, uh, you know, the end of civilization as we know it. I wouldn't worry about it at all. You can say, um, you know, you don't, if it comes up a lot, I doubt it does. doesn't, right? Yeah. You, you shouldn't even worry about it at all. Well, I guess the issue is really like how you tell someone that they're being pre-interviewed without making them feel like they're being vetted mm-hmm. or like they're being... Well, you know, that's a different question. What we say is, look, we're ta- we are looking for certain things. We're not sure which of these we plan to focus on. That way, it's the subject matter that's to blame, the one you've chosen, not that that person isn't a good talker. You um, they understand that. Yeah, you put, put it on the subject matter. We're, we're, you know, we're not sure whether they're going to approach it this way, but we might, so we just wanted to ask you about blah, 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 and thank you so much. You know, and then they, they don't think, oh, I failed the audition. You know, they just think, oh, they decide to go in a different direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I produce a radio show uh, on the healthcare system and medical culture in Canada, and I'm always struggling with my host who has a special problem because he's also an, an emergency room doctor, so he has all this inside knowledge. It's about being on the inside of the system and making it make sense, but I'm always struggling with him about how much for himself to put in the interview and how much to just get the hell out of the way. And I'm wondering if you have come to any wisdom over the years, because I can hear even from the excerpts that there's quite a lot of you in there. And so how, how do you know when to not cross that line when to get out of
1: the way? Anymore? What you're hearing is, a, is a, my reactions to things. And it's, it's part of my sort of philosophy that as the listener surrogate, I have to react like a person, an identifiable person anybody who listens to the show regularly sort of knows me just like if anybody reads a, uh, a movie reviewer regularly they know oh, this guy just hates Woody Allen so you can never trust him on that or something like that uh but I uh I think what you're talking about is that this guy brings in lots of his personal anecdotes and maybe some arcane jargon and some other things or sometimes
0: he, sometimes he because he knows a lot he will, he will
1: almost be smarter than the guest. Yeah. Um, with a lot of crap, that can
0: happen to a lot of
1: folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to be specific with him or her about, it's him, right? What you aren't happy with. I mean, what I've said to people when I've been an editor is uh, this makes you sound pompous. People don't want to sound bad. You have to explain, I mean, some of his anecdotes may actually be quite illustrative, but if you can say, listen, you know, when you're in it so much, you're, you know, you sound pompous, or you, I have to tell you that if you can politely present the case of, if you do this, you're gonna sound bad, it it actually works better than saying, uh, you're detracting from the content. (laughs) Because I mean, there's anybody who's behind a microphone, even even uh, people with social dysfunction, uh, or maybe especially uh, uh, don't they don't want to sound bad. So if you say you sound pompous, you know, Bob and I have a very frank relationship, and uh, you know there are lots of times when I'll say, "I heard you wanted this question, and I'm taking it out because unprintable," and he'll say, "Okay." Because, uh, and I'll I'll usually say something that would be too rude to say in this forum, because you sound like you're pleasuring yourself. (laughs) Bob is a great person to work with, because he he really understands, uh, you know, that a little bit is good, I think it is, at least for the purposes of our program, we've made a decision that a little bit is good, and too much is too much, and we've... We know where we've drawn the line. Sometimes we can't always judge within ourselves, and then we rely on uh, um, other people. I mean, I've asked my producers to take out three-quarters of my laughs because we record on two different tracks. It's quite easy. And, uh, you know, there's always an argument for me if they leave a laugh in because I, you know, I'm doing it to make the... Uh, the person I'm interviewing feel comfortable, but that doesn't mean I want all that stuff in there. So, I mean, that's subtle, but it really does make a difference to the ear. Uh-huh?
4: I'm wondering about voice warm-up. I find that my interview voice changes pretty wildly
5: from the quality of the changes uh, from day to day, and even during the course of the day. I lose a little register quite a bit and stuff, and so I you know i took taking some, some voice lessons. Do you do warm-ups?
1: Well, you know... But you're not doing an all day interview, right? So, as long as you're consistent within the interview itself, then there's the intro. Sometimes it's hard to miss the intro if you record that later. Are you live or taped? Thank you. So, um, yeah, no, I get, if I get upset, my voice gets higher pitched. I get more nasal uh, when I'm feeling on top of things. I raise my soft palate and I have a much more mellifluous voice. Uh, It also apparently happens, uh, I remember when my kids were little, if I, you know, called them from upstairs going, Sophie, Maxine, they'd go, we're not coming down if you're using the radio voice, you know, so. (laughs) So, um, you know, I I have found that, uh, you know, sometimes I just can't, the sound of my voice because I get sloppy and it gets nasal and closed and I sound like Edith Bunker and there's not there's nothing I can do to roll off that nasality. It's just stuck there. Um, you know what? It's if your interviews are internally consistent, you're a person. You know, you're not a machine. I, I just I don't. Sometimes in my interviews, I'll, I'll just hear myself squeak. Do you really think that? You know, and, it, and it's just you know. It's good to be a person, you know, oftentimes, especially public radio, you know, in horror at the kind of loud personality-soaked nastiness that happens in the rest of talk radio, thinks that the best way to get around it is to be so homogenized to the point where you're just unrecognizable as an individual. You're undermining the intimacy of the medium that we all care about and talk about and know so much about. If you stamp out these little, you know, variations over the course of an interview, you know, it's if you want to give the illusion that everything's happening at the same time and yet you, you know, we record throughout the week. Sometimes I sound, you know, on Tuesday I sound one way, on Thursday I sound another way. I'm going to... I I think people are much more listening to what you're saying than, you know, whether or not your voice has dropped a register. I mean, almost all of the intro recording I do is at, like, 4 o'clock Thursday morning, which is why I'm a little punchy now. But the thing is, is that it's, uh, you know, my register, I've I've smoked, like, 10 cigarettes, and my register is is really down in, you know, in the low range. I was trying to think of who has a really, really low female voice. But anyway, way down from the interviews. And sometimes I have to go back in and read them in a higher pitch. Uh, and then I just do. But I wouldn't worry about it. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh-huh. Um,
6: do you ever disagree with editing decisions that the producers make? And how do you deal with that as a host, sort of? Uh,
1: well, you see, and on my program, I'm also the editor. Yeah. But I, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll ask them. You know, I'll always ask them why. And lots of times they'll convince me that that needs to go in. Um, so it's not like I dig in my heels. I'm pretty flexible because I really get afraid. Uh, it's unusual to have uh, somebody uh, that has that much Power over a product, um, so you know I get challenged a lot, and and you know it's it never gets ugly, and uh, and but I spent so many years as an editor before I was a reporter, and certainly before I was a host that um, I think that I can step back a little. I have to tell you that there was one time a few years ago when I was doing a piece, and I was totally backed into a corner. And I knew that the people who who were much younger than me and hadn't been doing it so long weren't going to be able to work this out because it was fake, seamless. You know, all the transitions were seamless, but everything was in the wrong order. And I knew that I was, it was like every time I tried to move it, it was like the chairs on the Titanic thing. And I didn't know what to do. So I called up a really good editor, said, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you fix my piece. She's sitting right there, Deb George, and uh, she uh, she just bailed me out. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't get myself out of that corner. So you know, sometimes you you just do that. But uh, you know, for the most part, you know what you hear is a is a joint product. Most of our interviews take about 30 minutes uh, to do. Uh, the producer will cut them down to eight or nine minutes, 10 minutes, 11 minutes and then together we'll cut them down to about six. So they've already made massive decisions. They've done that over two or three hours, and we sit down for the final hour and a half and carve out around those places. So, um, you know, it's, it, they do the heavy lifting. Uh-huh, sorry. Hi. Thank you. I interview a lot of people that end up being their um, scientists,
5: engineers, up having a better way to describe them is they don't often get out of the house to describe these things. And no one ever asks them about this subject and they have a very hard time getting succinct answers and I don't know if you are making
1: point Yeah, that's Yeah, that is a tough one. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to... You, there, there are several ways that you can go about it. You can say, exp- just... The best way is to be totally honest and say, just explain this as if to someone who doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. And sometimes that'll shake them. If that doesn't work, no, no, I know less than that. You know, you can keep making, no, less than that. Five. Think I'm five. Assume I'm five. You know, at some point, they will laugh and you'll get like three or four efforts and at some point if you're lucky they'll pitch it there and that'll go for about 30 minutes or 30 seconds and then they'll go up and you go uh, 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 and then they'll just pitch it back down again wherever you know it's you just have to be persistent and really pleasant and uh and keep a really good sense of humor about it because if they lock up they're not going to be able to to, to do what you want them to do, especially in that that context, because they gotta sort of free their minds. So you gotta you know help them. And, you know, it's most things are solved with being pretty nice. Not everything, yeah. Are you
0: or have you ever been tempted to sort of change the way you talk depending on who
1: you're interviewing? You know. You know that's such a great question because I do do that. Although it's not a decision, I find that I talk much slower with slow talkers, and I end up speeding up really, really fast with fast talkers. Uh, there was a time at the very beginning of my career when I was in uh, the worst job in journalism uh, because no one would hire me. I had no qualifications, and uh, I didn't know what I was doing, so I was hired to work on, a, uh, <clears throat> on the trade association magazine that uh, served the strip mining industry. That was my first job. <laughs> I was fired. I was fired for my first journalism job. But one thing I found is that, you know, I, I was really nervous, really nervous talking to people on the phone, interviewing anybody. And these were all people from mining country, like rural Pennsylvania and Ohio. And I'd sort of, you know, I, w- I would talk like this, and you could hear my New York accent, and they wouldn't respond to me at all. You know, they'd call the head of the trade association and say, Why is this person bothering me? And I thought, you know, I used to think I was an actor. So then I consciously pitched my voice down. I work for this organization, and I just pretended to be like Lois Lane. And uh, and they'd stay on the phone, and they would tell me what I needed. Um, but I find that now, I'll sometimes just sound, I won't say I'd go all the way to Zelig, but I start sounding like the people that I'm talking to, and I think that's... I think it's just some kind of unconscious desire to have them with me and me be with them and that way, less separation. But it's not on purpose. Uh Uh-huh?
0: When you were saying before that you cut, um, you rearrange questions and answers, Mm -hmm. is that that you rearrange question, answer, question, answer? Oh,
1: no, 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 no. Well, yes and no, actually. Uh, We don't, we don't, Uh, put different questions to different answers in in the sense that make it seem like they're answering a question that we didn't ask. But there are plenty of times when we ask a question and they answer it. And then in response to a follow-on question, they'll add a little bit more meat to that bone. And then uh, another question and a little more. And so in answer to the first question, we'll have a combo answer that involves all of those things. Here again, it's a judgment call. It's tricky. It's dangerous. And I can't believe we've gotten away with it so long, but it's only because we are so excruciatingly aware. Sometimes, you know, a person will put a qualification like, uh, you know, some sort of clause saying, you know, well, everybody feel well, not everybody feels this way. And so I was going down the street and, you know, I spent like a thousand, well, it was more like $500. And, you know, and you have to leave all those things in or else not use the answer because you can't cut stuff that they're saying to uh, modify their statements even though they've messed it up. Or you leave in part of it and you leave in that one qualification. So, you know, there's all of these judgment calls, thousands of them, which you can make on a weekly show. The reason why ATC doesn't let you play the kind of havoc with their interviews that I play with mine is they don't have time to do it. You know, uh, they don't have the editor weighing in on every single edit. You know, it's, it's just, you know, our show takes a ridiculously long time to produce for a one-hour radio show that's mostly two ways. Uh, So in answer to your question, that's why I said yes and no, because there will be answers from other questions attached to the first question, but I don't ever intentionally have somebody answering a question that wasn't asked. Okay, so uh, do you want to get out early? Because I think... uh... It's not early, Oh, it's time. Oh, well, that's great then. Thank you so much.